few years ago, I was visiting the nation of Nepal. And while there, a local friend brother was with me and, and often was uh, traveling with me and therefore showing me around uh, his country. And one of the things that struck me throughout our time was his evident love for his own country, the pride, the, the joy that he had. And I'm pretty sure that he didn't only have that because he was showing someone new uh, around, but, but I get the sense that any day of every year, he loved where he lived. And as I admired Kathmandu and, and spoke of this great city, he was thrilled to tell me more. And as we looked and I saw the Himalayas for the very first time, his eyes were almost just as wide, with the same kind of wonder, even though he was so familiar with it. He too took joy in that beauty. I mean that sadly, in many ways, I'm not like my friend. I think with the busyness of life, with familiarity, though I love living in New England, I don't think I often am seen with that sort of view of New England. I don't have that sort of awe or wonder day to day. But it is occasionally when someone comes to visit and they say, isn't there so much history here? I'm like, That's true. And they say, well, you have the ocean and you have the mountains. And I begin to say, no, that's right. And they say there are Dunkin' Donuts on every corner. I said, now that's a reason to be excited, absolutely. But that doesn't just naturally emerge into me. I'm more prone to just with familiarity walk the streets and miss the beauty of where we live. And so it, I think, often is for people with the story of Christmas, particularly for people who perhaps have been Christians for some time, or at least attended church for some time, that from familiarity, we lose the, the beauty, the wonder, the amazement at this story. Our eyes sort of glaze over. We're unable to hear it afresh. This was our prayer that this week, we together would gaze upon this beautiful, world-changing story, and that our eyes would be lit up, our hearts would be filled, whether this is the very first time as some of you are hearing this Christmas story, or some have heard it for decades, that together we'd find joy in this good news. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, to Luke chapter 1. And you can find it on page 855 in the Bibles that are provided near you, page 855. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you today. So as we work our way through the passage, uh, you can see. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we'll be in chapter 1. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll start in verse 26. We'll go through the end of the chapter. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible for yourself, we as a church would love to give you one. At the back of the room, there's a table, there's a sign there that says free Bibles. Please just grab one of those, follow in the service, take it with you as our gift to you today. Now, we've been in a series in 1 Samuel that we're pausing. We'll pick that back up after the first of the year. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Trust and rejoice in the promised king who has come. Trust and rejoice in the promised king who has come. We'll look at our passage in three different parts. So first we'll see a reason for joy. Second, we'll see a response of joy. And then third, a song of joy. So a reason for joy, a response of joy, and then a song of joy. So first we see a reason for joy in verses 26 through 38. Verse 26 begins saying, in the sixth month. Now this is related to what comes just before in this passage. We're told of this woman who is actually related to Mary named Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah, who had desired a child, had prayed for a child, but had not had a child, were were well past the years when childbearing was possible, but now the Lord had promised to give them a child. And this one who Elizabeth would bear is is the one who would be the, the forerunner, the one who would go before the Messiah, who we call John the Baptist. And we see that the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, came to this small town, this obscure village called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. And the angel came to bring a message, we're told, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
Now, we're not told her age, so we can't be certain how old Mary was at this point, but based on the customs of that day when they would normally marry, it seems very likely that Mary would have been a teenager at this time. We're told she's betrothed to this man named Joseph. Betrothal was something like our engagement. It was actually even more formal than that. So an actual agreement, there's a defined commitment among them through this betrothal. And Gabriel greets Mary, look at verse 28, and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So he says to her that she has received grace, this favor from God. And we see in the text that Mary was greatly troubled at this saying, no doubt at the presence of this angel, trying to discern what sort of greeting is this. And so Gabriel responds, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So among questions, it's clear also that Mary was frightened enough that the angel knows it and says to her, don't be afraid. And this is the pattern we see in the Bible. On the rare occasions that people meet angels, the people are always terrified. Now, if you've not read the Bible much and you started only in the Gospel of Luke and read Luke chapter 1, Already there are two appearances of angels, so you might begin to think this happens a lot, that lots of people meet, by, meet, meet angels, but if you read from beginning to the end of the Bible, it's actually quite rare. It's extraordinary that people meet angels, and when they do, it's unmistakable that they met an angel and they're terrified. So therefore, it's actually informative for us that, that we're never told that we should seek angels. We're not to say, I would like to meet an angel or go looking to try to meet an angel. And if you do meet an angel, though, one, it'll be unmistakable. You won't think, was that an angel? And you'll be terrified if you do. And they'll say to you, don't be afraid. That's their opening line always. But then Gabriel gives this message to her. Verses 31 to 33 says that she will conceive and she'll bear a son. The name of the son would be Jesus, which means the Lord saves. The son will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and his kingdom will never end. So the message is, this one who is to come is the very son of God. And he's coming in accordance with God's promises and with God's plan that he would take up the throne of David. So this one coming is the eternal son of God taking on flesh, coming near. The true Savior and King is breaking into the world. After being told this, Mary responds to this with a question. Now, what has just been said would lead to, I think, many different questions. But it's interesting, she does not ask a question about what it is that the Lord is doing to come so near. She said her question is very personal and very practical. Verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She was not sexually active. She couldn't see how she could give birth to a baby. Just a reminder that back then, people knew where babies come from. Sometimes we can sort of arrogantly look back and think, oh, people just naively, easily believed in the virgin birth as if they did not know how biology worked. They knew and we know, and that's why Mary asked this question. So we shouldn't be sort of condescendingly arrogant modern people when we look back. So she says, how can it be? It's a good, it's a fair, reasonable question. Angel responds, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age was also, has also conceived a son. 
This is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So Gabriel does not give her many details, but explains that somehow, mysteriously, the Holy Spirit will bring this about in Mary's body. He also explains that there's another sign that's being given to Mary as a means to encourage her in her faith, and that is that her relative Elizabeth, who she would know well, is far beyond the age of childbearing, and that she has a baby she's pregnant with now. And then the concluding words, for nothing will be impossible with God. So friends, we should notice that Mary had questions. She had doubts. How will this be? This seems impossible. And we should notice that Gabriel did not scold her for that. Didn't say, how dare you ask a question. But it said, Gabriel condescended to answer this question for her. But just a good and appropriate thing to have and to ask questions. It's not ungodly to have questions and doubts. So know that for yourself, but also we want to know that as a church, that we'd be a church that would welcome questioners and their questions, would welcome doubters and their doubts. We might ask, though, but what are we to make of this virgin birth? Some will try to assert that this is actually, it's just a myth that was created. But if you read the Gospel of Luke, it's clear that Luke is trying to put together, as he describes, an ordered account. And he tells us a specific time, down to the month, a specific location, specific names. That's not what you do in a myth. So you can choose not to believe it, but we'd have to say Luke himself is not intending this to be read as a myth. He's presenting this as this is a real thing that happened to real people in time in this world. As Christians, we also realize that this is a miraculous thing, the virgin birth. It is unexplainable to us. We also say we don't think this happens regularly. It's happened this once. That's what we believe It is miraculous. It is true. We don't know all that has happened. We choose to believe in this one occurrence. And what was Mary's response after Gabriel gives more of an explanation? Verse 38, she says, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So notice this sort of progression. Mary's told something. She has real questions, real doubts. She's given additional information Not the full picture by any means, but she is told more, and so she says, let it be. I don't don't know all that that means, but I'm going to trust this. I'm going to humbly trust the word of the Lord. Friends, this is the way for any and all of us, humble trust in the Lord. Friend, if perhaps you're not a Christian, and maybe this is the very first time you've been to church, or you've come here regularly, we're so glad that you're here. And I hope that you hear, as I say, that Christianity, we as a church, welcome questions, welcome doubters. And so they sent that you have questions. We we hope that you would feel safe here to to maybe attend with us for the weeks to come on Sunday morning. Or at some point, if you'd like to talk about those questions, we'd be very happy to arrange for you to speak with someone. Or, Or maybe there's some things we'd love to read if you're interested to answer particular questions that you might have. So please do question, explore even wrestle with doubts. 
But at some point, every person who would become a Christian has to take a step of humble trust. Where we say, I had real questions. I've explored those through God's word. I have some answers. I, I don't have them all answered necessarily. But like every worldview, Christianity requires faith. So at some point we say, I've, I've asked questions, I've explored this, but I, I think there's sufficient that I can step forward in faith, or we might say humble trust. So friend, this is the way into the Christian life, humble trust in Christ. But it's also the way forward for all of life for the Christian. We never move beyond our need of humble trust. For the entire Christian life, we continue to live by faith. Though we do see, we grow and understand, we have much in God's word, and yet still we're living by faith and humble trust. As we read our passage, we're reminded in our passage that God is always faithful. That he's always faithful to his promises, and he's always faithful to his people. God had promised in the very beginning to Adam and Eve that he would provide a savior because of sin coming into the world. And that across the generations, God continued to weave that story as more and more was filled in of what this promised one would be like. We've been in the book of 1 Samuel through this fall. And last week we saw this young boy anointed as king, David. Well, if we keep going through 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord will say to, to, to uh, David that from David's own line, there would be a king who would come who would be an everlasting king, who will reign forever. So there, there's even more of the picture. This promised one, when he comes, he'll come in the line of David and he will reign forever. The prophets pick this up and they continue laying out, picture more and more of what this promised one would come and that's what's happening in Jesus. God's people waited for generations, longed for the promised one to come. They hoped for the coming of the Messiah. And now, at this moment, in the coming of Jesus, again, God is showing himself faithful to his word, faithful to his promises, and faithful to his people. And if you're a Christian, we are those who live in light of promises fulfilled in Christ, but we also have promises made to us that are not yet fulfilled that we await their fulfilling. So the promise made to every single Christian is that he will keep us to the end. He's promised to, to every single Christian that he will faithfully finish what he has started in us. He will bring us eventually to maturity. And he's promised us that there's a day coming when finally there will be no more sin and no more suffering and no more death. Promises made, not yet fulfilled. And so we too wait, waiting for our faithful Lord to fulfill those promises. But let me encourage you, God has shown his faithfulness to his people across the centuries, and he will be faithful to us. He will be faithful to you. We also want to see this assurance that's given to Mary, and that is that nothing is impossible to God. Those are the words of Gabriel to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, he's referring in its immediate context to Elizabeth, 
having a child well past the years of childbearing. But notice he, he's not referring only to that. He says nothing. Not just Elizabeth, but, but nothing will be impossible with God. It's a stunning promise. That would be true in Elizabeth. It's true in the virgin birth of Mary. Nothing will be impossible with God. Friends, this is also the story for us. It's the very heart of Christianity. Nothing is impossible with God. In salvation, the miraculous happens. We who were dead in sin are made alive in Christ. We who are enemies of God are adopted into God's own family. Our lives are transformed now. We're brought into eternal life promised to us. For it's impossible, made possible through God's powerful hand. For every time a person comes to saving faith, Every time we celebrate baptism, we're, we're celebrating what, what should be impossible, made possible through God. For nothing is impossible with God. So friends, we today live by faith, trusting in the God who nothing is impossible to him. When we pray, we're praying to the God who nothing is impossible but it's worth considering, I think for each of us, myself included, do I really pray in that way? For if nothing was impossible to God, I would think I would pray some really big, bold prayers. Because nothing is impossible to God. But I admit, often my prayers are very small in their scale. In fact, often I'm praying for things that actually I can do on my own. I'm praying that if God might intervene, but if not, I can do it myself. Friends, if this is true, nothing is impossible with God, how massive can our prayers be in faith? Praying to the God who does what seems to be the impossible. There's a helpful book of Puritan prayers called The Valley of Visions, just all these different prayers that I often pray through. And there's one that I often, actually often pray on Sunday mornings before I come here. And the prayer in particular is called the great God. Here's a part of that prayer. Nothing exceeds thy power. Nothing is too great for thee to do. Nothing too good for thee to give. Infinite is thy might, boundless thy love, limitless thy grace, glorious thy saving name. I ask great things of a great God. And that's what we do, right? We, we have a great God. So therefore, we can ask great things. We have a God who nothing is impossible to him, so we can pray for things that otherwise would seem to be impossible. At this point in the text, we don't yet see joy in Mary, but we already see the very reason, the foundation for joy. The reason for joy for all the world in the coming of this child. Second, then, we see a response of joy response of joy in verses 39 through 45. So after Mary receives the message, verse 39, she, she quickly goes to visit Zechariah and Elizabeth. And notice what happens as Mary arrives. Look down at verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. She exclaims that more. Verse 44, Elizabeth said, When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So the very first person to encounter the coming Savior is this one who's still in the womb, the one we will call John the Baptist, 
And he's the first one to express joy, and he does so by leaping in the womb, which I, I guess that's, I mean, the, the baby can't speak. You know, he's inside there, so I guess that's just what you do. You, you leap. That's the best you can do to show your joy, and that's what happens. Also, then we see Elizabeth marked by joy, verses 41 to 44. She doesn't use a specific word of joy, but it's evident by Elizabeth's response. She's overwhelmed that the mother of her Lord would come to her. She exclaims the blessedness of the baby and of Mary. Elizabeth is stirred, moved by this opportunity to now encounter her Savior. In just a moment, then, we'll see Mary's joy as well. So here we see joy in the baby, and joy also in these two women, these cousins, Elizabeth and Mary. And what's the source of their joy? It is this, that the, the anointed one is here. The promised Messiah has come. God's sovereign planning and time has now come together. So these two women and the baby John the Baptist shared this joy. But this joy was not only for them. For Christmas that we celebrate was not only for them, but it is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So we see a response of joy. And then third and last, we see a song of joy in verses 46 through 56. We see verse 46 that Mary breaks into a song that's sometimes referred to as the Magnificat. This is uh, from the Latin translation of the first words. That's why we've gotten the term Magnificat. And she begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So Mary rejoices. She's filled with joy at the coming of her Savior. And in Mary's song, we see some helpful categories that can help us to find joy. We see that we can find joy in what God has done for us. We can find joy in who our God is. And also in the uniqueness of our God's kingdom. Now, as we look at Mary's prayer, if we look closely at it, we'll, we'll notice that it's saturated with themes of the Old Testament. Words, pictures that are across God's word. Many allusions to the Old Testament scriptures are here. We also find numerous similarities in Mary's prayer, or Mary's song, to another song of a woman. In fact, one we saw early in this fall in the book of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, we saw this woman, her name was Hannah, who longed for a child. Did not have a child for years and years, prayed for it, longed for it, and eventually, God provided a child, which would be Samuel, the key player so far in 1 Samuel. And if you remember back in chapter 2, Hannah sang this great prayer, this beautiful prayer describing the uniqueness of God's kingdom. And perhaps this week, you'd want to sit down and compare these two prayers, and you'll see many similarities of these two godly women and the songs that they sing. But it's worth considering, we, we believe Mary to be a teenager how could a teenager compose such a beautiful, rich, scripture-saturated prayer? It's worth asking each of us, like, how saturated is my mind and heart with God's word? Do, do I have the resources within to draw forth thoughts like this? Is God's word in me so that from my heart comes these themes of the scripture? Sometimes we can tend to think that, you know, kids, teenagers, 
you know, can't handle significant theological studies. So often we, we can be tempted, Christians in America, to kind of dumb down things for kids, for teenagers. Thinking there's have to be a, you know, an adult well up in years to, to think about significant theological concepts. Friends, that's just not true. People of all ages, kids who are young, elementary kids, toddlers, can, can begin to understand these massive concepts. College students, give your hearts and minds, fill them with truth. And those of us who are a little beyond college, we too are, are well served to saturate our hearts and minds with God's word. We can find joy, we see, in what God has done for us. In verse 48 and 49, Mary tells some of what she's meditating on that God has done for her. So she magnifies her God because he's looked on her humble estate. She's aware, even at that time, that from then on, generations will call her blessed. Verse 49, she says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Friends, dwelling on what God has done and was doing gave Mary great joy. And friends, the same is true for us if we're Christians. The story of God's grace in our lives, in history, can fuel joy in us. Now, we don't have the exact experience of Mary, no question about that, but what we can say with her, he who is mighty has done great things for me. But if you're a Christian, that's true of you. The Lord has done great things for you. Starting in your salvation, that in his kindness and grace, you were not looking for him, but he pursued you. And then by his power, he opened your eyes. You might trust in him. He's now saved you. So friend, as we see others baptized, let it remind you of what God has done for you. We celebrate what God has done for them, absolutely. But let it remind you what God has done for you. It's a miracle, a true miracle. Anytime one of us are transformed by God's grace. Friend, remember that. But also beyond salvation in various areas of life, how God has particularly worked in your life, where God has provided and sustained, when he has helped and when he's restored. That's not to downplay real pain and real questions that we still have, or prayers unanswered that we still carry the weight of. But friends, we're helped by remembering what God has done for us. We can also find joy in who our God is. Verse 49, Mary says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. So friend, our, our God is great and powerful. That's good news. Nothing is impossible for him. So therefore we have hope. But not only is he powerful, notice verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So our God is mighty and he's merciful. He's merciful and he's mighty. One or the other would not be sufficient for us. We need a mighty God who can save. We need a merciful God who would save, who would desire to save, who wants to save. So we have both, friends, in our glorious God. He is mighty and merciful. He is powerful and he's gracious. And friend, if you're not a Christian, this is the God we would like for you to know. There is a God who is mighty to save, and he is merciful. So he's made this salvation freely available 
to any and all who receive it. We also find joy in God's unique kingdom. As this mighty and merciful God works in the world, he he brings his kingdom in, which is upside down from every other kingdom in the world. For he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, verse 51. He brings down the mighty, verse 52. The rich are sent away empty, verse 53. But on the other hand, he exalts those of a humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things. And our king and his kingdom are so very different from every other kingdom that ever has been or will be here in this world. And we see a glimpse of just how different it is at the very beginning of this book. For in a world that that devalued women, their uh, legitimacy, their word, who are the heroes in Luke 1? It is these two women, Elizabeth and Mary. Their faith, their joy in God are held out to us because that's what God's kingdom is like. And in the coming of this baby, the mighty king humbling himself, taking on flesh to enter the world. He who became poor, that through him, through Christ, we might be made rich. That wealth comes through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection, which gives to us not temporary wealth, but something so much greater than this, this eternal salvation that begins now and extends into eternity. All of this a gift of grace paid for through Christ's death and his resurrection for us. If you're not a Christian, this is available to you today. This gift held out. You cannot earn it. You must not try to earn it. But it's held out to you today. So we invite you to consider Jesus. To begin that exploration, perhaps now, that would go forward in the future. But, but friends, some of you have been considering for some time. Weeks, months, or years. And I wonder, what, what keeps you from today saying, I believe I'm going to humbly trust in Jesus today. I look to him alone for salvation. Let me urge you as a friend to do that. There's no greater decision you would make than to to turn to Christ today by faith. As we consider this text, we may wonder, how are we to think about Mary? For among Christians, there can be great confusion of how are we to think about her wisely. Well, it's very possible to overly exalt Mary, but it's also equally possible to undervalue Mary. Some traditions overly exalt Mary, believing that she had a a sinless life, that she was perpetually a virgin. But we see in Mary's own words, verse 47, that Mary understood that she herself needed a savior. So she was not sinless. She didn't understand herself to be sinless. She had herself to be blessed by God, but in need of a Savior. But on the other hand, often Protestants, often in response, undervalue Mary. Elizabeth says of Mary, blessed are you among women. Mary says of herself, verse 48, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So we want to be people who appropriately hold Mary up in high regard. We don't worship her. But we also don't demean her. We say, What a key player she is in the history of God's people. We see her faithfulness, her humble trust with the very little information she had, and yet she walked by faith. So we want to think well, but 
also in always understanding, she was a sinner like us in need of God's saving grace. Friends, this Savior, Jesus Christ, from his very infancy, has provided joy, transforming joy for the world. So as we conclude today, what are some ways we might cultivate or pursue that joy? Well, friend, one way I would encourage you is, is try to carve out a few moments for regular reflection. We live in such a busy, noisy world that it will take some effort to even carve out a few minutes when we're not hearing anything else. We just be still and remember what God has done to dwell upon God's past faithfulness. Friend, to remember the mountaintops of what God has done in your life. That, that's not to deny the valleys that are real. You may be in a valley, but to reflect upon God did this in me. And when God did that for me, and this other mountain of God's faithfulness, friend, remember that. But it will take some practical effort to think through like, how can I do that? So it might be you carve out a few minutes to start the morning before you, you know, fill your mind with other things. Or maybe while you're, you know, waiting at a bus stop for the bus that is never going to come. So you have some time to be still and to listen. Or, or you're in the car. You say, I'm, I'm not going to fill my mind with, with sounds, with music, with podcasts. But for a minute, I just want to reflect as I do. Regular reflection, friends, can stir our joy. We also want to seek to saturate our minds with God's word. To fill our hearts, our, our souls with God's word. So that like Mary, we'd have this resource, this well, from which to find joy and encouragement. So what would it look like for you to think about taking in God's word regularly? We're about to cross over into a new year. And often people have goals or, um, uh, what do they call them, uh, resolutions uh, that, that you make. And so you might think, what would it look like for me to desire to take in God's word more in the new year? That's a good desire. I would caution you, though, that if that's your desire, better to have a a realistic goal of progress than an unrealistic goal that will crush you and will never happen. Does that make sense? So, for instance, if my goal, I thought, you know what, my goal in January is to run a marathon in January. But the fact is, this month I've run less than three miles. The likelihood of me running a marathon in January is zero. So I'll be crushed under the weight of that. So you're like, well, I haven't read the Bible much at all in the past year, and now I'm going to read the Bible through three times in the new year. I just encourage you, that's probably not a wise goal. But say, well, yeah, how can I make progress? That I'd read more than I did last year. That I'd regularly take in God's word. We also, friends, can grow in our joy when we magnify God in this world. We do that in a number of ways. One of the ways is when we gather each Sunday. There are numerous things we're doing, but one of the things we're doing, especially when we join in congregational singing, is we're lifting our voices together to magnify the Lord. And so in these songs that we're singing, we're saying, by faith, this is what we believe. We're reminding each other as we sing. And sometimes we can barely say the words, or sometimes we, we're filled with tears and we can't sing, so we let our brothers and sisters sing for us. Sometimes we say, I can barely say the words, but by faith I'm going to keep saying it, even though doubts are strong. And together we sing those by faith. We also magnify him as we're scattered to the city. As you're on campus, in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, and we face challenges there. 
when every one of your fellow students is grumbling really negatively about the professor. And you face a choice. Might I glorify God by choosing to speak and act differently? Or when all your coworkers are angry and gossiping, say, by God's grace, I'm going to magnify my king by living differently. Friend, the Spirit will help us in that, and we'll find joy as we do. Friends, we live now, we live between promise fulfilled and salvation that Christ has provided and promises yet unfulfilled. Promises that are coming, that are sure, but are not yet ours. And so we wait, often in pain, often in disappointment, often in the valley. And so we, make, we face a regular question of, will I have joy even as I wait? Or am I only willing to be joyful if I have sight of everything? Will I only have joy in God if every prayer is answered? Or I will say there's still some deep longing, some deep disappointment as I wait. But though there are valleys, there are mountains in my life. There are mountains in the history of God's work. I can sing for joy because of those even as I wait. famous London pastor by the name of Charles Spurgeon. In the 1800s, he wrote this of Mary. He said, Mary must sing, and sing she did most sweetly. I call your attention to this fact because when we ourselves have a song to sing unto the Lord, we may perhaps be tempted not to sing it till our hopes are accomplished and our faith has been exchanged for fact. Brothers and sisters, if this is the case, do not wait. For your song will spoil if you do. There is another song to be sung for the accomplished mercy, but there is a song to be sung now for the promised mercy. Therefore, let not the present hour lose the song which is due it. Hear what he's saying? There's a day coming when all the mercy will be accomplished. It will be full. It will be sight to us. We're not that year. We're not there yet. So will we sing of this promised mercy? Some of it we have realized in salvation, but some not yet. So let us be those who sing with joy based on past mercies and also hoping in promised mercies. Let us trust our gracious King who has broken into the world.